Chapter 30 of Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book 2 by Niccolo Machiavelli, translated by Ninian Hill Thompson. Chapter 30 That really powerful princes and commonwealths do not buy friendships with money, but with their valour and the fame of their prowess. When besieged in the capital, the Romans, although expecting succour from Veii and from Camillus, nevertheless, being straitened by famine, entered into an agreement to buy off the Gauls with gold. But at the very moment when, in pursuance of this agreement, the gold was being weighed out, Camillus came up with his army. This, says our historian, was contrived by fortune, that the Romans might not live thereafter as men ransomed for a price. And the matter is noteworthy, not only with reference to this particular occasion, but also as it bears on the methods generally followed by this Republic. For we never find Rome seeking to acquire towns, or to purchase peace with money, but always confiding in her own warlike valour, which could not, I believe, be said of any other Republic. Now, one of the tests whereby to gauge the strength of any state is to observe on what terms it lives with its neighbours. For when it so carries itself that, to secure its friendship, its neighbours pay it tribute, this is a sure sign of its strength. But when its neighbours, though of less reputation, receive payments from it, this is a clear proof of its weakness. In the course of the Roman history, we read how the Massilians, the Eduans, the Rhodians, Hiero of Syracuse, the kings Eumenes and Massinissa, all of them neighbours to the Roman frontiers, in order to secure the friendship of Rome, submitted to imposts and tribute whenever Rome had need of them, asking no return save her protection. But with a weak state we find the reverse of all this happening, and... To begin with our own Republic of Florence, we know that in times past, when she was at the height of her renown, there was never a lordling of Romana who had not a subsidy from her, to say nothing of what she paid to the Perugians, to the Castellans, and to all her other neighbours. But had our city been armed and strong, the direct contrary would have been the case, for, to obtain her protection, all would have poured money into her lap, not seeking to sell their friendship, but to purchase hers. Nor are the Florentines the only people who have lived on this dishonourable footing. The Venetians have done the same. Nay, the King of France himself, for all his great dominions, lives tributary to the Swiss and to the King of England. And this because the French King and the others named, with a view to escape dangers rather imaginary than real, 
have disarmed their subjects, seeking to reap a present gain by wringing money from them, rather than follow a course which would secure their own safety and the lasting welfare of their country. Which ill practices of theirs, though they quiet things for a time, must in the end exhaust their resources and give rise in seasons of danger to incurable mischief and disorder. It would be tedious to count up how often in the course of their wars the Florentines, the Venetians and the Kingdom of France have had to ransom themselves from their enemies and to submit to an ignominy to which only once the Romans were very near being subjected. It would be tedious too to recite how many towns have been bought by the Florentines and by the Venetians, which, afterwards, have only been a trouble to them, from their not knowing how to defend with iron what they had won with gold. While the Romans continued free, they adhered to this more generous and noble method. But when they came under the emperors, and these, again, began to deteriorate, and to love the shade rather than the sunshine, they also took to purchasing peace, now from the Parthians, now from the Germans, and at other times from other neighbouring nations. And this was the beginning of the decline of their great empire. Such are the evils that befall when you withhold arms from your subjects, and this course is attended by the still greater disadvantage that the closer an enemy presses you, the weaker he finds you. For anyone who follows the evil methods of which I speak must, in order to support troops whom he thinks can be trusted to keep off his enemies, be very exacting in his dealings with those of his subjects who dwell in the heart of his dominions, since, to widen the interval between himself and his enemies, he must subsidise those princes and peoples who adjoin his frontiers. States maintained on this footing may make a little resistance on their confines, but when these are passed by the enemy, no further defence remains. Those who pursue such methods as these seem not to perceive that they are opposed to reason and common sense. For the heart and vital parts of the body not the extremities, are those which we should keep guarded, since we may live on without the latter, but must die if the former be hurt. But the states of which I speak, leaving the heart undefended, defend only the hands and feet. The mischief which has thus been, and is at this day wrought in Florence, is plain enough to see. For so soon as an enemy penetrates within her frontiers and approaches her heart, all is over with her. And the same was witnessed a few years ago in the case of the Venetians, whose city, had it not been girdled by the sea, must then have found its end. In France, indeed, a like result has not been seen so often, she being so great a kingdom as to have few enemies mightier than herself. Nevertheless, when the English invaded France in the year 1513, the whole kingdom tottered, and the king himself, as well as everyone else, had to own that a single defeat might have cost him his dominions.
But with the Romans, the reverse of all this took place. For the nearer an enemy approached Rome, the more completely he found her armed for resistance. And accordingly, we see that, on the occasion of Hannibal's invasion of Italy, the Romans, after three defeats, and after the slaughter of so many of their captains and soldiers, were still able not merely to withstand the invader, but even, in the end, to come off victorious. This we may ascribe to the heart being well guarded, while the extremities were but little heeded. For the strength of Rome rested on the Roman people themselves, on the Latin League, on the confederate towns of Italy, and on her colonies, from all of which sources she drew so numerous an army as enabled her to subdue the whole world and to keep it in subjection. The truth of what I say may be further seen from the question put by Hanno the Carthaginian to the messengers sent to Carthage by Hannibal after his victory at Cani. For when these were vaunting the achievements of Hannibal, they were asked by Hanno whether any one had come forward on behalf of the Romans to propose terms of peace, and whether any town of the Latin League or of the colonised districts had revolted from the Romans. And when to both inquiries the envoys answered, No, Hanno observed that the war was no nearer an end than on the day it was begun. We can understand, therefore, as well from what has now been said, as from what I have often said before, how great a difference there is between the methods followed by the republics of the present times and those followed by the republics of antiquity, and why it is that we see every day astounding losses alternate with extraordinary gains. For where men are weak, fortune shows herself strong, and because she changes, states and governments change with her, and will continue to change, until some one arise who, following reverently the example of the ancients, shall so control her that she shall not have opportunity with every revolution of the sun to display anew the greatness of her power. End of chapter 30